Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Life After Discard. I'm your host, Lauren. I hope all of you are having an amazing first week of uh, New Year's. This is the time when we're filming it, whenever this episode comes out, but it's the first week of January. Hope everyone's enjoyed their holidays. I'm very excited about my guest today because she is a fellow uh, mental health worker um, she's actually a licensed social worker in the state of Utah. I had an opportunity to speak with her prior to recording this, and her Instagram is absolutely amazing. Um, her name is Tanisha, and um, welcome, Tanisha. I would love for you to have the floor and tell us about yourself, what you do, and I'm already brag like bragging on you. You have an amazing website and all the work you do. Tanisha, Welcome. Awesome. Thank you. It's so great to be on the show. Um, so yeah, a little bit about me is I am a licensed social worker. I also, um, yeah, I'm a therapist. I, um, I help people learn how to heal. And that is the highest honor in my opinion. Um, so a little bit about me is I do lots of different work. So I do counseling and I also do speaking um, and coaching. And I kind of just help people along the healing journey. I talk about burnout. I educate people about all sorts of mental health topics. But um, my main passion is trauma um, and recovery from that. And then also, yeah, I love talking about burnout. I think it's something that so many people don't understand. So I talk about that as well. And then I myself am also a survivor of all of these things, honestly. But yeah, I call myself a trauma survivor. And I advocate and educate, and um, that's what I do. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, um, I, w I was very drawn to you when we had our first conversation because, like me, uh, I love how you are turning pain into purpose because let's face it, we're all part of a club we didn't really want to be a part of. I mean, you are on a podcast called Life After Discard, and we know what that means. So um, if you're comfortable and willing, what brought you here and what made you want to um, be vulnerable with your audience to tell your story today? I think for me, I think I've been very like therapist with my audience um, and with others, with everyone. And I also like, it's interesting because I'll be like, oh, I'm a trauma survivor. I don't really tell people very much what that entailed. And part of that is because I like to make it about them. But also I think my story has value. And I think there's a lot of things that people can learn from hearing stories and understanding that like it is a hopeful thing that we can overcome what we've been through and yeah um, everything is overcomable and i think that when we see mirrors of ourselves when we see other people who have overcome similar things we say okay i can do it too like we we think okay like someone else has done it so i can't be alone and that's mainly why i do this you know yeah, and I think that's important too because I don't know if you've encountered this, but I have a little bit too. Is um, a lot of people will say, "Well, what you've experienced trauma, or you've um, dealt with something that you, you know, in the wrong way, so to speak." You're a therapist. You're supposed to have all the answers. You're supposed to heal yourself, and it's supposed to be perfect. Like, what would you say to that? Um, has anyone ever said anything like that to you before? Yeah, I think. 
a lot of people like assume like oh you must have it all together or like you know they just assume that my life before has been great I like and I think as a therapist it's different because like when I've worked with clients in the past it's been like oh you don't really understand because you haven't been there and it's a power th- powerful thing to be able to say oh yeah I have been there before and you know this is what it looked like for me uh, and I think you know sometimes it's hard as a therapist to feel like you can share story, your own story because absolutely really don't want us to do that. Like we have certain rules around what we call self-disclosure. So when you become a therapist, you know, in school, they really teach you be very careful about how you do that. And so outside of session, I'm happy to be vulnerable with anybody. Honestly, I'll talk about it anywhere, but in session, yeah, like you do have to be very careful and, so I've always been mindful of that because like secondary trauma is a thing. Like you can actually, yeah. you know, be traumatized by hearing specific details of other people's, um, other people's experiences and other people's trauma. And so it's all about, you know, it's all about being able to balance that. And, but it's so nice when you get to say like, no, I have experienced something. Do you mind if I share it with you? And you get their permission. And that's where you can really like build a connection with someone as opposed to having them feel like oh you're this perfect person and you're here to fix me yeah absolutely I I think that's really good because yeah when we were taught the same thing in school um as I told you I'm an LPC and you know you're always taught about like transference and re-traumatizing and you know boundaries are as you know are a very important thing but I think a lot of people don't realize that you know a lot of times therapists have their own therapists just as general because we're human too and we need to be able to process all these different things in our lives too and I think by doing that but like by what you're doing um with um your your podcast and your website I think by releasing some of the things that you are I think that helps um us become better therapists just better practitioners in general would you say Yeah, I think so too. I think acknowledging your own stuff and acknowledging like being able to say what you've been through and also just being able to like recognize that something there's more to you. You're not perfect is a good sign of a good therapist. (laughs) At least in my my opinion, like if you're, if you, I don't know, people don't really observe the lives of their therapists closely, I don't think, but I think in respect to like, if you have a family member that thinks they're perfect and they're becoming a therapist, we all know, we all have one, we all have one. Oh yeah. And they think that they're, they don't have any problems. Right. And then they go and do the work and then it really starts to go downhill from there. Like, that's not the best way to do this work. The best way to do this work is being able to recognize it in yourself as well. Like it's, it's, Correct. it's intangible. Yep. Not, it's not, I'm better than you. So I help you. It's that I'm, I'm actually similar to you and I have a lot of similarities to you. So that's why I can help you. Yeah, exactly. So what you just said is actually a really good segue. Um, family members or anyone for that matter, thinking they're perfect. As you know, as a practitioner, that unfortunately leads to very different types of personality issues, disorders. And unfortunately, from what I understand, 
you've experienced a discard and um, a traumatic experience with a narcissistic person in your life. So if you're comfortable, um, you have the floor. Um, you can share whatever you feel safe with sharing. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I have been discarded. I don't like that word. I just like, I'm like, discard. It's yeah, so- it sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. It sucks. <laughs> I don't even call it that. I'm just like, I'm no contact or like whatever, like, you know, yeah. kind of falling out. Like I've really minimized it, but that's truly, I mean, truly what it is. Um, but I, yes. So background on who I am and how I arrived. Uh, so I was adopted at birth. Um, and my adoptive dad is a narcissist. And so, uh, my parents were married for 20 years. My mom, bless her soul for tolerating that abuse for so long. Oh Um, man. (laughs) Largely emotional, lots of just ridiculous infidelity, all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and it's interesting because she actually didn't ask for the divorce. She was also discarded. He looked my mother in the eyes and said, I don't love you anymore. And that was how he divorced her, even though, you know, she stayed with him through. Right. So they adopted me. Um, they adopted my brother, who is adopted from another family. I'm also a transracial adoptee. So my parents are white. Um, you know, I was adopted into this what would be maybe described as the stereotypical sunshiny Mormon family in Utah. And, um, you know, I think my mom is amazing and that's the positive is like, my mom is like always good rock for me. Um, but yeah, so that was like the first, probably the first, the start of it. And then after they were divorced, um, there was always this dichotomy between my mom and my dad. And I started to recognize it right around the time I was 13. So I got divorced when I was nine. And then by the time I was 13, I really started being able to recognize some of the psychology of this, even though there was so much to unpack. So um, my, my adoptive dad um, had a lot of issues. He led a secret life and, um, you know, was into a lot of porn uh, to the point where it was probably an issue, even though that's never been like, never been pinpointed. Right. It's like, Oh, we found lots of porn on TV. Right. But you know, the kids got the controller. Right. So like, even my mom was like, not fully aware of what Mm -hmm. was really happening. Yeah. Denial is a powerful thing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And that was a layer that played into I was sexually abused by my adoptive sibling from the time I was four until I was probably mm, nine. Um, And then, like, that was a layer because my adoptive dad always said it was an experimentation. So it was never, like, acknowledged. Um, You know, I was put in therapy and things, but it didn't really come to a culmination of what is supposed to be done in those situations until later on. So that was like layer one is like, I, he always would say things like, you know, that's why we don't do things like you two did. Right. As if a four-year-old little girl. Oh, wow. Putting all the the blame on you. (laughs) Wow. Right. And a four-year-old and a nine-year-old don't understand that. Right. So no, my, it's weird because my abuser is also a child. So that gets complicated. 
and porn was heavily involved. So it was like copy what they're doing on the screen, right? Weird, layered abuse. And then when the adult found out, it was like, oh, you guys were trying to play a game. And that was the language that was used to describe my own abuse to me until I was old enough to recognize that's not normal. Um, So that's like layer one. Layer two is my dad also like, these are things I didn't recognize until I was an adult, like until I was like 17, 18 through, you know, early 20s. I'm 29. So this is all stuff I, I barely even could wrap my head around when I was like a late teenager. And I started to have all these trauma memories. And then I started to actually be able to dive into the psychology of what was happening with my dad. But I didn't really like, I didn't really recognize that. I was like, oh, you know, he says these things, he's kind of a jerk or, you know what I mean? But he loves me, right? Like, just like the back and forth, especially as a child, you don't understand that. So um, he would do things like that. And one of the things that was a huge part of my childhood was my dad could not keep a job. So he would, he would jump from job to job to job to job. And we would move from house to house. And I don't know how he got on these houses. We like, we were able to get into these houses we would rent or own and then foreclose or be evicted um and the longest we ever stayed anywhere was two years um and we it was very traumatic for me to like have that happen because it was like losing everything it was um and and he would say like oh I just they didn't promote me, so I quit. Or he would make up lies and be like, "Oh, yeah. they're racist." Yeah. So either a lie or all, all, always someone else's fault, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you know, you'd be like, "But dad, like, don't you need a job so that we can live in our house?" And he was just never willing to sacrifice any pride. If he didn't get paid a certain amount, he wouldn't take a job for long periods of time. And so I moved 17 times from the time I was five until I was 17. Um, and it was a lot. And that isn't even the part that, that is just my childhood. What? That isn't even all of my childhood. That is just wow. one. That was phase one. Phase two. Phase one. The divorce, remarried. <laughs> In phase two of narcissism land, he got remarried. Right. Um, and there was a period of time where he was unemployed for two years. And, um, you know, the nice thing about being raised by Mormons, I'm still a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, the ones that don't practice polygamy, the ones that, um, you know, were kind of different than the stereotypical things that you might hear. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so they encourage food storage and saving for a time of need. So we lived off of the food that we had stored for a couple years. Which that was a positive, um, but also not <laughs> for obvious reasons. And um, you know, he was refusing for two years straight to work, refused to get a job that didn't pay him a hundred thousand dollars. He did not graduate from college, and it's not like he had his own business or was doing any of that anyway. Um, he didn't have a trade, so his ability to make that kind of income. Uh, straight out of the gate was just not going to be there. Like he was going to have to stay somewhere and work his way up if he wanted to do that. And he just wouldn't do that. As soon as someone made him upset at work, he would 
he would blame other people. And then, you know, even more layers, he was awful to my stepmom. And, you know, after that, I moved out of the house. And then, you know, a few years go go by, I get married, and he no-showed my wedding. So that was the beginning, I guess, of the official discard. It was the the first Wow. That's a pretty big discard. (laughs) It is. But but it wasn't the culmination because, you know, I told him I'm, you know, I'm getting married. You know, he had met my husband and, you know, he was, he liked him at the time. And then he fixated on the fact that my husband didn't ask him permission to marry me. Um, and for me, like, I'm pretty feminist, like I don't believe that I am property and someone does not ask for permission to marry me. I don't believe in that. I didn't change my right. last name for that same reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just don't, I don't drive that yeah. way. And I told him that and I, he didn't get over it. But then I was like, will you witness my wedding? Cause I need a witness. Um, and he was like, yes, I will be there. Yada, yada. Um, six months go by. And then the morning of my wedding, he sends me a text message that says, I have been crying all night and I am so sorry to have to say this, but I have to work. So I can't come to your wedding. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, of course he's been crying all night. I mean, they make it about them. So of course, Mm -hmm. um, wow. Wow. Um, Before you continue, I want to back up a little bit. When did you first, because I don't know if this is your experience, but it's definitely been mine. In grad school, we were taught about personality disorders like, you know, borderline, narcissism, histrionic, antisocial, but I felt like they were sort of not brushed over, but not as emphasized as things like depression, anxiety, bipolar. Um, Mm -hmm. That's my experience. So when did you first start recognizing that term for what it was with your dad? I probably honestly, this late, like I was probably like 24. And I started going to therapy after like, realizing, okay, like my dad's never going to show up for me ever again. After coming to that realization. And that was you know, yeah, because after I got married, it was like, you know, my husband, it was a whole thing. My husband was like, how dare you? Because he showed up to my reception. Um, But he didn't, he didn't come to my wedding, but he showed up to my reception. Um, of course he did. There's a party, right? <laughs> and he showed up late, right? So he didn't show up on time. He just walks in and says, we got to do a daddy daughter dance. And I actually wanted to do, do one. I was kind of like, at least wow. he showed up. Like, whatever. Right. So... We didn't, but my husband is um, a Sagittarius, so that says what it says. He was like, <laughs> I will fight you. He was like, I will fight yeah. you. So he kicked it off. He was like, you got to leave now. Like, you don't come in here and demand your daughter dance. You freaking didn't show up to the wedding that you were supposed to, like, be in. So he was like, get out of here. Like, leave. So my dad threw the biggest fit and left. Um. And so it was like, it was like after that, when I finally realized, oh, this might be a narcissist. I was in grad school and it was, I can't remember what prompted it. There were so many things because we had text. There were, it was only texting. The only way my dad would communicate was text after I got married. Wouldn't answer phone calls. And I would text him like four or five times 
like here and there and be like, did I do something wrong? Why aren't you talking to me? You know, like, you know what I mean? Are you okay? Like weird things like that. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't respond for a long time. And then I would write a paragraph and then he would write two words back. Like, sorry, can't, or, you know, busy or just stupid stuff like that. And then my husband, like I, I had, there was a Christmas that like, we couldn't meet up. We couldn't meet up, right? Um, and I had like a complete meltdown. Like it was Christmas. We went to my mom's house um, and my stepdad. And I was like, I loved Christmas as a kid. Christmas is a narcissist haven. I got, oh, like, God, oh, yeah. I was like, love bombs like crazy at Christmas. So then, of course, it's rubbed in your face after. But I remember, like, I was just remembering, I was like, how does this, it doesn't make sense. It's so disorienting. And it feels like someone you've known your whole life, how could this possibly be? And um, my husband, like, sat me down and he just, like, held me crying. And then when he wiped my tears, he said, he said, baby, you deserve so much more than to beg your own father who adopted you to be anything for you and like then I went to therapy and started realizing that that was what it probably was wow I that that phrase is just wow that's really hitting me hard that you deserve so much more than for begging your own father who adopted you to love you um Mm -hmm. yeah that and and that's I really hope my listeners get um really get something out of that statement because the idea that you have to beg someone to love you when it should just come naturally. But I get what you're saying too, how it's the whole thing is disorienting. The whole idea of narcissism, whether it's covert or overt, it's very disorienting because at times you feel like you're the crazy one. And, you know, yeah, you start Mm -hmm. thinking, well, am I just being ungrateful? Am I just too much? Am I too needy? Am I too clingy? All those things are, are disorienting for sure. Cause you even said when you had the moment when he came in for your father daughter dance, like, you know, I'm sure you do have that moment of, Oh, he really is a good person. He really wants to. And then after therapy, it just kind of sucks to realize well, of course, it's a show. It's all a show. He wants to look good. He wants to say, oh, I, he wants to have the moment captured on video. In other words, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Like it was so, it was so crazy too. And it's crazy that you, it's interesting that you say that too. Like, yeah, they make everything a show and you feel crazy. And yeah, you do feel crazy because he tells people that I didn't invite him to my wedding he tells people I didn't invite him so also I graduated college twice right I got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree right he didn't go to either of those he didn't go to either of those he was invited to my bachelor degree graduation and honestly they had a zoom link for people who couldn't travel and he did not click on the link and I know that because the way wow. it's set up is like ticket and It'll like go to the email and say your e-ticket is ready and it'll say if it was like used or unused or whatever. He didn't even watch the freaking Zoom <laughs> and he he didn't come and he tells he told my little sisters because um, he got got remarried, had two kids with my stepmother. Um, and yeah, he told he told them that I, I didn't invite I didn't invite him, which we're all kind of like in the know, like. 
kind of know that that's not true. Um, but yeah, like he totally tells people like, oh, my daughter's like wayward. Um, and like, just like all this crazy stuff. Um, and I think the that, real that you're the wayward. <laughs> yeah. Like I have like, like wayward. I don't know. That's it's such a, it's such a weird <laughs> thing. Cause it seems to have like a religious connotation, but like, yeah, it does. Like you're like, I you're, mean, it, it, so I, if I had to guess, <laughs> yeah. Like if I had to guess, he's saying, oh, you're just some sort of drifter unstable. And that's a classic of a narcissist. They want you to feel like you're the unstable one, just drifting along life yet you know, you have a license, masters, and your own website and your own brand. But yeah, you're a drifter. Okay. <laughs> That's funny when you say it that way. Yeah, right? Like, just okay, sure, dude. Together. <laughs> um, and the real kicker is, so like, you know, I'm 24. I started going to therapy um, to deal with this because I knew I was going to need it. And... Um, at the time I, I think I was still in grad school, like it was toward the end. And so money was tight. It was tight. So I couldn't afford to go see my <laughs> the therapist that I had. Oh, so gosh. I stopped him like, like so sporadically. And then I was like, okay, I'm broke. So I got to wait a while <laughs> until I can go again because I didn't have insurance that was going to cover it because I was interning and I was, it was so dumb working a job that didn't support it. So whatever. Um, I, I then go back. I went back home for something. I can't remember what I went back home for. I wanted to, Oh yeah. I wanted to see my sisters and I hadn't seen my stepmom in a long time. Cause there's a little bit of a background to that is they got married me and my stepmom. I think my dad, honestly, as the narcissist turned her and I against each other all the time. So he would tell me. That oh yeah. Triangulation. Of course. <laughs> yes, exactly. He'd be like, you're not doing anything wrong. I don't know what her problem is. And then he would be like, to her, he would be like, you need to discipline her. She is like out of control. You know what I mean? And create, they would do crazy things. Like my dad would be like, you got to take away her clothes because she's not being modest. And like the, the guideline for quote modesty. And it's, it's honestly not even a Mormon. Modesty is not even this high of a standard, by the way. Okay. The modesty was like, you have to have a shirt like, yeah, like this in order to be considered modest. And so they took away any, like any clothes that didn't match that. And like, that is like, it, that is insane. Like that, that isn't even, that is a whole nother thing. Like there are some evangelicals who like, they can't, they have to wear dresses all the time. We're not those like, you know, and so that was like a whole crazy like thing that went on for a long time and then um you know just he took away some of my clothes and then lied and said that my stepmom took them and brought them back to me and then when I talked to my stepmom I was like why did you take my clothes like my dad just gave them back to me like I was thinking like I'm so smart and she's like I never took my clothes and like I thought she was a liar, but now I'm like he totally took them. Like, like no, like you totally oh, took them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and there's just like all this crazy control stuff. Um, he was like, you know, I'm the clergy of the household. You're gonna have to confess your sins to me in like really creepy ways. Um, and yeah, we don't we don't do that. So it was just so intense. Um, and so 
all of that had gone on. And then with my stepmom, like we would just get into fights, like screaming matches um, about stuff that he would tell uh, me to do or things that he would say, like, Tanisha, you're fine. You don't need to listen to her. So I wouldn't listen to her. And then we would just be fighting over that all the time. And, you know, eventually I just, I left and like, you know, I just took my stuff. I called my friend, got in her car and I was like, I'm running away from my dad's house and I'm never coming back. I packed like two things and left. Right. And my parents didn't have, they had like a joint custody agreement. And after I left, like it wasn't petitioned. And the reason why is because my dad was in the Philippines working quote unquote working. So he finally found a job that he wanted to work and he was working and he worked in the Philippines from the time I was in about ninth grade until after I graduated. So I go back home. So back to the future. I go back home for, uh, to see my little sisters. They're significantly younger than I am. They are 15 and 17 years younger than I am. So I was a teenager when they were born and you know, I want to come see them. I negotiate with my stepmom to come see them because my dad's not answering text messages, right? And I'm not communicating with him. And I go see her and she sits me down and lets me know what happened. So um, story has it that my church, you know, called her in. My church uh, is, is saying, hey, like there's something going on. We're very confused. They had gotten some sort of record from the Philippines um, that there was another wife and the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is vehemently against polygamy. It did practice polygamy in the 1800s and then they denounced it. And now they excommunicate people if they practice. So, Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so they're very serious about it. They called her in and they were like, are you practicing polygamy? Like there's another marriage record. And she was like, no, what is going on? And she's thinking like, she's like, what is going on? Like, it was like the bishop was like, do you like, do you know where this might have come from? Is it an accident? Whatever conversation happened there. And she was like, no. So they found out that he had gotten married in the Philippines and he had had a child um, with this other woman and was also helping support her three other children. And so they excommunicated (laughs) Yeah. But it was drama and I didn't find out to that. So she tells me this and I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like it didn't Mm -hmm. like it wasn't like, no, he could never like I was like, oh yeah, that tracks. He was never around. I had like I had a a few struggles with my mental health while I was living in their house because like I had a friend die and he came home from the Philippines one time and just was like, What's wrong? I was like, my friend died in a car accident. Why don't you understand that? And he was like, what do you have to be sad about? Like, he literally could not what? understand. Did not have any understanding of what that was. And just all of this stuff had happened. And so I'm finding out and, like, going back in my mind, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. He has a he has a second family. Um you know, would explain why all these things happened. And she said, that's why, you know, he couldn't come to your wedding. And I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, he couldn't go. So uh, in the LDS church, we do weddings in our temple. And then we have a temple ceremony that it's like members only. And then mm-hmm. we can do 
other ceremonies outside. Um, well, he couldn't go into the into the temple ceremony because he was excommunicated. And gotcha. for me, okay. I was like, oh, you could have told me that because like there's tons of things like there's tons of things that go on, and there's like I will acknowledge lots of um, rules. I guess are like our church's version of kosher, right? Like lots of rules. Right, of right. So I'm like, I get it if someone doesn't like go, you know, you could just tell me that, right? A normal person, right? Like my whole- A normal husband, person. <laughs> yeah. Like a, like members of my husband's family were like, oh, we'll just wait outside, right? Like that's just what we do. And then we go to the reception, we have fun. And- right, th- That's okay. He didn't do that. At, like, you know, oh, for certain situations, for sure. You can't be showing yourself that way. Like you're a narcissist. You can't be outside. Oh yeah, your, your video disappeared. But anyway, you can't be outside. Yeah, we got it. You're a narcissist, and so, um, like she's explaining all this to me, and my head is just like spinning. I'm like, this makes so much sense. And she told me that she learned that my dad was a narcissist, not after the whole you know church gets involved, excommunicates him, realizing all of the bad stuff that he had done the betrayal not after that she realizes he's a narcissist after they had separated and my dad called the department of family services and told them that she had written some sort of letter bomb threat whatever that she was going to murder them and dc wow concerned about this report that they went into uh, my sister's school and took them out like midday, no warning, um, immediately, like immediately, like they were there like so fast and <laughs> other social workers out there, you know, that don't happen. They don't come for nothing. <laughs> they are not worried. Uh, yeah. About, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're not worried about most things. Um, so they showed up immediately and took them. And then the social worker that was doing the evaluation, talking to the kids was like, Oh, your kids are groomed. And they think that you're crazy because they have been like, it's very obvious with their psychological patterns that they have been groomed to say things that like to, to say things. So, um, and it wasn't like, it was like the interview was with the social worker kind of was like, okay, so let's talk about what's happened. Are you scared of mommy? Like what's going on? And they were like, she's going to kill us. And just would repeat that over and over again. Okay, like, did she say that she was going to kill you? No. You know, dad says she's going to kill us. Like, you know what I mean? And so it's very obvious that they've been, like, psychologically groomed to, like, think Well, I'm, I'm glad they picked up on that right away. That's good. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was a whole ordeal. And then the social worker, I guess, you know, told her, yeah, this is a narcissist you're dealing with. Like, this is a person that is unstable. Like the elaborate level of that report and then also like the the kids being as confused as this they were also like scared because they were like just ripped out of their life but there's also like all this stuff going on and so that's when we kind of realized oh like wow that's when i realized i was like oh my gosh like totally so i want to ask you so you said earlier in the episode that 
obviously no contact is the way to go. And I'll, you know, if you listen to any other podcast about narcissism, um, I'll go into this more on, on my series too of, you know, no contact obviously is the way to go with any person like that. If you're able to, I know if you have kids, it's, you know, things are complicated sometimes, but what has no contact been like for you? And what do you do daily just to affirm your healing and affirm your truth? Because like the the theme of my show, it's messy as hell some days. There's some days where it's just, you don't feel good. You almost want to reach out sometimes. Um, so what are some tools that you use and towards, you know, and then after that, what would you say to our listeners who are going through a lot of similar things with no, who are struggling with no contact? Sorry, I just gave you a load of questions there. <laughs> Very good. I I'm thinking. Um, I would say, okay, the first thing that I feel I felt was I couldn't recognize it, but it was grief. And for me, especially as an adoptee, like that is, it was so intense because like it was just ripping an abandonment wound wide open. So, and for me, I have like an open adoption. Like I know why. I know what happened. I know, um, I know that my mom wanted, you know, she wanted someone that could raise me she was experiencing poverty there was a lot going on and that's what she gave me up she didn't want to but she felt like she had to right so that's number one thing and then um you know my bio dad wasn't really involved and so I always kind of felt fatherless anyway um but at least I had my dad and so when my adoptive dad like when that happened it was like just floods of grief like it was like it was like I don't have a dad like period at the end I don't have a dad and then it kind of moved into like just like anything positive would pop up in my brain and it it was so upsetting and triggering because like I know what the positives are like he I remember really early memories like I remember being held as like a one-year-old I straight up do I remember like being so uncomfortable in the cold water on your head. Like I literally, people think I'm crazy. I do remember. And I remember like being played with a lot as a child. I remember um, like parties and things. My dad would throw huge parties all the time. Right. Cause well, and I like what you said earlier too, Christmas. Oh my goodness. Like it's hard not to enjoy parties and things like Christmas with the narcissist, because again, it, I bet they are amazing and extravagant for sure. Mm-hmm. There's high highs and low lows. So the highs are amazing and the lows are so low. And so that was number one is just the grief that I felt. And the number one thing that I actually grieved, which I didn't even tell in the story because there's so many layers to this, is that um, I, my dad cut off his five siblings who were like my shed inside the family is very close, very close. My like my cousins all talk to each other. My cousins' cousins talk to each other, and so he cut off all of his siblings and all of the cousins and everybody. And it's actually something I experienced recently. More recently is the grief. Is you know I, I was in therapy recently, and I was talking to him about. I was like, like what is going on? Like I'm so upset, and I and then I just broke down and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so upset because. He deprived me of like 20 years with that whole beautiful family that I've now reconnected with. So it's, it stemmed from like, I'd gone and seen all of them and reconnected with all of them. They were full of so much love. Like 
hugging me, holding me. And they had actually asked me, like, do you know why? Oh, your dad I'm so like, happy to hear that, too, that, that you got to reconnect with it. They were like, do you know uh, why your dad? Like, I get, like, maybe they're upset with our parents, but like, why did they stop talking to us? And that was just like, he, like, he cut off every single one of them. And they all felt, they all felt hurt by it. And I was like, oh my gosh, he like literally tore a whole extended family out of my life. A huge, big, loving, fun one at that. Yeah. See, and that's another thing I don't think people realize. And I like how you touched on that too, that you're not just grieving the person that you thought this person was, but you're also grieving an aspect of life that you're missing out on. Um, I mean, that's part of grief too, because these people cause issues in all circles of everything. Um, So yeah, like I always tell people too, even when you get out of like a relationship per se, you're not necessarily grieving the person, you're grieving the time. There's a lot of women I hear say, honestly, Lauren, I'm grieving my damn 20s. I'm grieving. I was stuck with this person during my 20s or my 30s. Yeah. Time period in itself and other family members are just as valid grief surrounding this person. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was intense. And it like, so I'd say, first of all, just recognize like you're going to have grief and just like, let yourself have it. Like be like, have that rage, have that, like those processes are so important to just let your body like release them, you know? And also I practice a lot of mindfulness. Like it's kind of cheesy, but I love to meditate. Like that is so important. I love energy work. Like it just, you know, brings so much out of me. Um, the other part I would say is for me, because of like some of the religious and spiritual weaponization that happened, I had to like step away from my faith and I had to like, I had to take a breather and decide, like, I think one of the best things yeah. I was do, the most empowering things I was able to do was, um, reconstruct my relationship with spirituality and decide, okay, do I actually think this? Do I actually like want this? And, um, I think that, you know, I think for a lot of people it's really hard because like it feels so unsafe to navigate like yes. transitions and religious trauma. Um and so for me I usually don't talk about that honestly like I like in my practice and as a therapist I don't talk about spirituality very much in terms of like a religion. Like spirituality is your relationship with meaning and purpose, right? And for me right. there is kind of like that like I guess quote unquote faith-based context but I think for me, since I've been through it, like there's a lot of my clients out there that they're going to be like, oh my gosh, Tanisha was my therapist and she's freaking like one of the Mormons. Like, cause I've had a lot of anti-Mormon or like not anti-Mormon, but like ex-Mormon people who have been my clients because I know how to mind my business. You know what I mean? And I know how it feels and you know, you just don't need to, I think when it comes to that, it is so sensitive. Some people just need to like, untie themselves completely yeah for sure and i think that's really wise of you recognizing that you need to kind of step away because there was there was some trauma with your religion because i tell people this all the time like when you're vulnerable and you're healing i think it's perfectly natural that you want to reestablish your own spirituality or or explore others however i always say you got to be careful because when you're vulnerable and you're low that's how cults get you just like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really smart of you to just, I mean, not withdraw and isolate per se, but just really reestablish your own spirituality. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Cause honestly, like, I think that was one of the most 
empowering things is being able to reclaim what I think. And for me, like, I think, you know, faith is about, you know, sometimes it's about community. And sometimes, you know, like, you don't have to be completely orthodox into something. You don't have to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people with religious trauma were forced to be like a certain way. And a lot of them were forced to like, I don't know, to live these crazy lives. Like I hear about, you know, people who were forced to just live only one way for their whole life. Um, And I can't honestly imagine that level, but I would say, yes, like you need to be able to reclaim your power in that, in that aspect um something I think of is like I watched the documentary Our Father, the 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 doctor that like yes. did the fertility frog and they have all these children and he was like he was trying to weaponize faith against them and this girl was like, I will not let this man distort my relationship with my spirituality. And I think that's that's really what it's about. Whatever it is for you, like, you know, it could be it could be anything. Like you don't you don't have to pers- subscribe to ideas that don't sit right with you and you don't have to like you know what I mean you don't have to do that um and you're not evil if you don't do it either like I think there's so many dogmatic ickiness that goes on um just with spiritual abuse it's disgusting um oh for sure it's unfortunate unfortunate that I'll have to have you on I'll have to have you on again because that's a whole other topic of discussion for sure (laughs) for real for real it's horrifying but yeah I would say if you're going through something like this you absolutely can rebuild and you can rebuild your life you don't have to communicate with that family member anymore some people are really like nervous about cutting someone off and they're like, oh, I'm really distressed and sad about it. Does that mean I should talk to them again? And the answer to that is no. It's like looking at why. Like, you don't honestly miss the negative interactions you have with that person or the positive ones. You're just grieving. That's what you're experiencing. It's it's a loss, you know? Like, And it's not necessarily um, because of the person itself. It's because there was a role that they filled. And so you have to figure out what was that role. You know what I mean? And how is it affecting me? Yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, Yeah, and that's hard for a lot of people. And I'm I'm really glad that you're encouraging our listeners because it it is hard and it is scary to cut someone off completely. And and you're right. It's not to say that that route is for everyone, but depending on how extreme it is, um, yeah, you're right. You should not have to feel guilty about not having any contact with this person or minimal contact. yeah, I, and I, the takeaways I'm getting from what you're saying is just that guilt that we give ourselves. We need to stop it. <laughs> I mean, essentially, it's just we have to stop feeling guilty about putting ourselves first, which is not a selfish thing. But unfortunately, we've been kind of groomed to just by society that to, to do that. Like self care is not selfish. I know that's a cliche you see everywhere now, but it's the truth for sure. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate you saying that. Um, so Tanisha, where can my listeners find you? I am going to link your website and your Instagram and everything on the show notes, but, um, can you tell, tell them a little bit about your website and where they can get in contact with you? Yes. So you can, um, you can, it's www.boundproject.org. Um, and that's where I have my courses right now. I don't have anything like directly live 
Um, but my courses are going to start in the next couple months. Um, I have a boundaries course that teaches you how to set boundaries with. Yes, please that. go to her site and sign up, please. Cause I was actually yeah. looking, I was stalking your site before you came on the show. So yes, please. Yeah. Sign up for the boundaries course. Um, teaches you how to do all that. I also have a trauma course. that's all about, it's all about mindfulness. It's all about tapping into like using meditation, using, um, journaling using what I call well polyvagal theory but what what I would probably in layman's terms say is using your body to heal there's lots of yoga involved um it's really tapping into you know who the new person you want to be after you go through trauma so it's kind of like this mind body soul and we we tap into you know how do we help our mind how do we help our body and then how do we actually you know process a little bit and deconstruct like the person that our narcissist person made us be to who we are now and who we want to be which is the important important work that we um that we need to do when we're healing from trauma um and then i also have a podcast it's called the found life podcast and i interview all sorts of people on there i've interviewed a medium i've interviewed um energy healers i've interviewed people lots of people with just different trauma stories as well who've gone through things i've interviewed some coaches i've interviewed a frequency doctor he's very interesting um and uh body positive influencers here and there just anybody who has a story to tell um and anything who has some advice for you awesome Awesome. Yes. Yes. Definitely go check out her website and her podcast. Um, and again, I will link her Instagram handle so you can find all that. Um, Tanisha, I want to say thank you so much for coming on this podcast today. I, I know how difficult it is to be vulnerable and raw, as I promised. That's the idea of the show. Um, but I think, especially with a narcissistic parent, I think your story is really going to help it's going to resonate with a lot of people and help them realize what they're dealing with. Um, Cause I'm just picturing the image of the father daughter dance at your wedding and just how traumatizing that was. And believe it or not, I'm sure there are other people who have experienced something else and not don't really have the name for it yet. So I think your story is really going to help people gain clarity where they need to. So from the bottom of my heart, I really thank you once again for coming and being so vulnerable with us. And thank you for your power and your light. Yes, anytime. Thank you so much.